Welcome to Mint on Air and Client Corner, perspectives from founders, financiers, and friends. I am Josh Fox. In each episode of this podcast, I will be joined by an entrepreneur, an investor, or a member of the startup community. My guests will share their experiences in starting and running a business, investing in a business, and helping to support a business. I hope that my conversations with my friends will provide valuable advice to you, help those of you who are building a business to make it successful, and inspire those of you who are thinking about starting a new venture. My guest today is Rahul Danda, an experienced CEO, founder, and director. Rahul, welcome to the show. Thank you, Josh, for having me, and thank you to Mintz for inviting me to join the podcast. It's our pleasure. Rahul, you and I currently work together in your capacity as Chief Executive Officer of Syntis Bio. What is the mission of Syntis? Syntis is developing tissue-targeted therapies. You know, our mission is essentially to make drugs that are more efficacious, safer, and more affordable so that they're more accessible to the populations that need them and more effective when they're using them. Could you talk about the problem of accessibility? Yeah, you know, I think that there are many layers and levels to that challenge. In one regard, there are challenges no matter the geography. I think healthcare itself is somewhat expensive to a lot of populations. We take for granted those who have insurance and those who don't. And that's just here domestically in the United States. You know, we can go from where you and I, you know, work every day in Boston 20 miles and find pockets of individuals who just can't afford certain therapies because of the conditions of you know their healthcare system and their healthcare participation. Now we can go a thousand miles and find you know, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 miles and find even greater disparities in higher concentrations. And so the challenges around it are access to affordable solutions as well as access to the infrastructure that can deliver that. And so we really need to address this at multiple levels. Cost is the most obvious, but beyond that, simple solutions that are stable and are able to be used are just as important. So for us, it's everything from how do you address a global health problem from a clinical perspective to how do you develop that therapy in a way that is going to be valuable in our particular healthcare system but accessible to where healthcare systems are far less supported along that spectrum of supply chain all the way through the delivery. Major problems and ambitious goals that you have at Syntis Rahul. Can a small biotech startup like Syntis achieve all that you just described? But obviously, I believe so. <laughs> you know, I think one of the things that is unique to being a startup is that you get to set your mission and goal and you get to adapt to the everyday challenges and everyday opportunities that come your way. And so long as you build the team in a way and drive the company in a direction that is focused on that mission, then it is eminently possible. I think it's something that we can certainly achieve. I think choosing the technologies you work with, choosing the applications that you develop, and then aligning the skill sets behind them make that goal very accessible. And where is Syntis in its corporate life cycle in terms of stage? Yeah. So, you know, interestingly, we are 
from, say, a financial perspective, considered a seed stage organization, you know, as you well know, as you, you obviously worked very hard for us during that financing. But in terms of, you know, our, our actual technological development status, you know, we're in a very late stage of preclinical. You know, we have done extensive experiments with large mammals. We have done very, very I think, detailed experimentation and, and generation of data around toxicology and other elements that are necessary to enter into more formal development into the clinical stage. So, you know, in some ways, I think we're punching above our weight from a technology and development perspective. And what do the growth plans look like for the organization? Yeah. So we are trying to stay lean and I'm really working towards getting in the clinical space without a lot of growth. I think one of the major challenges and and also one of the major mistakes that a lot of companies at our stage do is that they grow and scale faster than the organization requires. And so, you know, what we're really focused on are growing our employees more than we are growing our numbers, given various, you know, variables that exist within the market, within the financing community. But also because I believe, you know, what we have between our core employees and the many, you know, vendors and service providers we use, the infrastructure in place to act like a much larger organization, but have the footprint financially and, you know, from an FTE perspective that it, that is much smaller. That makes sense. And you mentioned the financing that you and I worked on together. What can you tell the audience in terms of the the, the amount of capital that was raised and from whom uh, to the extent that that's publicly available information already? Our financing was targeted at a $10 million seed raise. We were very fortunate that it was oversubscribed by a little over 50%. So it was a little bit over $15 million. You know, we had a good mix of strong life science investors, particularly bold and so far, but also strategics, ColorCon and Touchdown Ventures, and even one insurer who took a major position in the organization. And, you know, because you have served as the CEO of multiple companies, I'd like you to reflect on what's similar across organizations regardless of, of the, the company that you've been at the helm of? Could you talk about the similarities and the differences? Where the similarities are, are really on how do you build a high-performing team and how do you build a strong culture to ensure the success of the organization? And then also, how do you set up process and infrastructure so that rapid decisions can be made where when you're in a small organization and a growing organization, your biggest advantage can be leveraged, and that is the ability to make quick decisions and be decisive and process feedback from those decisions towards bringing that goal closer into sight for that organization. And so the things that are common, I think, are really around how do you build the right team and how do you focus the team on the goals with the culture that leads towards consistent excellence. On those last two points, building the team and getting the most out of your team when they're in place, motivating them, achieving goals, talk to us about how does a good CEO go about accomplishing both of those goals? Yeah, that is the crux of success, I would say. And I think that the most important thing you do is hire directly to work with you that your direct reports to be the highest performers 
that you can identify, but also ensure that they are representative of the values that are most important to what the organization is. And it's harder to do the latter than it is to do the former. I think, you know, we have tremendous, you know, we're in Boston, tremendous amount of skill. I'm blessed with a network and with co-founders who can reach just about anybody. But when you find that expert and, and what you want are experts in every role so that it's not your job as a CEO to be an expert in those roles, then you need to find those individuals who are going to nurture that next level of leadership and instill within the organization the culture of success, but also of empathy and understanding that gives everyone a safe place to function. So it's really starting from the top moving down that you build a team that is going to make the thoughtful hires so that you don't have to be involved at every step of the way, but that preserve that ethos of success and teamwork all the way throughout the organization. So, you know, if we distill it to a single single concept, it's hire the right people who are going to hire the right people. How would you describe your management style? You know, I, I believe, and, and the honest answer would come obviously from the people whom I manage, but, you know, I believe, you know, that I'm a flexible manager, meaning that I like to hire people who can run with the ball when we've all aligned around what the objectives are. And my role is to offer coaching and direction when they reach a barrier or a fork in the road. That style changes when the ball isn't being moved. And so when it becomes more important for me to become engaged with a particular program, project, or team, then I shift towards more direct management. And I think what what guides me through this is that there are a lot of the things the organization can and will do, but one of them is not going to be fail. And so if I see your risk, if I see an issue, then I recognize that's the area where I have to put direct focus, both as a manager and as a leader. So ultimately, I don't want to be running anybody else's business. And even when I step in, I don't do that. I try to be collaborative with the leader. But what drives my management style is achieving the organizational goals that are necessary for us to succeed. And so if I can let go, I will let go. If I have to grab on to the problem, then I will grab on to the problem. It makes sense. And, and thinking about the team very broadly, you mentioned earlier, you know, in addition to having a strong group of employees, you're able to also use external partners, service providers, other members of your broad team to help you be successful. One part of that, I would imagine, would include investors. Could you talk about how investors can be an effective part of your team once they've joined the company through their financing? Yeah, I'm happy to. I mean, investors, you know, they run the gamut from hands-off to very engaged. And I think when thinking about your syndicate, it's really important to decide, you know, what do you want along that spectrum? And in this stage of an organization, the more help you can get, the better. 
you know, the more that you can actually scale your cells cost effectively by, you know, using those who are compensated and incentivized by the equity they have, I think that's an incredible asset. And so, you know, if you remember the composition of our syndicate, we have strategics, we have professional investors, and they all bring, you know, different things to the table. So in one regard, you know, we have a strategic with great access to potential partners and they remain engaged with the organization and ready to make introductions when and if we want those, as well as doing some behind the scenes market research for us to help us understand how do we position ourselves for success in those areas. We have others that have been incredibly successful in you know, drug development, device development, and can help us accelerate our pace by offering both advice, but actual work as well. There are, there are, com- there are competencies that they have that we can plug right into. And then, you know, I think there's one other area that is critical to all of the financing aspects of it, which is introductions to new investors and credible ones that can help us grow into the organization we we intend to be. And so I've had investors work with me, you know, throughout my career at every level. I've had actually investors who have done market research with me, gone to clinicians, sat in the chair next to me, helped me get the best data I could because they were not just investors, they were physicians in our space. I've had investors who helped frame pitches to other investors, but also other strategics. And so, you know, I think playing to their strengths that align with the demands of the organization is really the best way you can leverage them. And speaking of pitches, what would you say are the keys to a successful pitch? Yeah, that's something that's evolved for me over the years. I think there's the soft stuff and the hard stuff, and I'll start with the soft stuff. One of the most important things you need is, is real conviction. It may seem that every entrepreneur has it and that it would be silly to even mention it, but it's interesting that there are some who are building companies for reasons other than advancing the company. And so I have found, at least in my case, that I bring to the pitch the conviction that I believe everything I say, that in fact, the statements I make don't actually capture the kind of conviction I have. So that it's such a strong position of belief in terms of the organizational opportunity that that becomes a little little bit of what's infectious to the investor. And I think it helps if, you know, obviously you've done it before so they know that there's credibility behind you. I think the other thing, if we get a little bit more on the harder stuff, it's a very crisp and clear story that you have to tell. There can't be ambiguity and there can't be extraneous ideas and words because investors don't have a lot of time and they've seen a lot. So they can cut through all of the fat that you might be bringing into the, to the story. And the other thing, and I think this is a common mistake that many people make when they pitch, is that you need to focus on markets and return more than science. I think many people and many entrepreneurs get caught up in the science as something spectacular, expecting there to be a leap on the investor's part towards the opportunity. There are many breakthroughs that are not going to be commercially valuable. They're interesting, 
but they don't lead towards the kinds of products that deliver the return that is a necessity of an investor's approach and you know interest in any given firm. So I really think it's important to start with the market opportunity and work backwards to understand how your technology is going to be developed to achieve that in a differentiated and value-appropriating way. And when you can tell your story from point A, which is where you are as an organization, to point B, which is why you're going to capture more revenue than anybody else in the market, then I think you're in the position to really get to an investor and tell that in the most crisp way. We've spent a lot of time talking about your role as CEO, but you've worn many other hats before. I'd like to ask you next about being a founder. You've founded companies. Some CEOs haven't done that. They just join a company after it's been founded, typically after a financing has been concluded. Could you talk about the hardest part for you in starting a new business? Yeah, happy to. And I guess it's probably an unsatisfying answer for me to say everything. Everything is hard when you start a new business. There is nothing more terrifying than the blank page, I think, as an author once said. You know, I think when you're starting the company, there are so many pieces that come together. There is the scientific story and the diligence you yourself have to do to be convinced that there's a there there. Uh, there's the matching that to the market without resources to actually do research. You've got to be very efficient. And I think one of the reasons why experienced entrepreneurs may do better is that they already have a good grasp of the market. Then there are the logistics that have to come together. You need to have a good waffer. You know, I think one of the things that made it a lot easier for us at Sintas is that Mintz came along and worked with us in a very, very generous way to make sure that we could put that those pieces together and, you know, having things that you don't have to worry about, like that operational infrastructure, is a huge relief. And so getting the story together, getting alignment around the founding team getting momentum and getting a deck and a data room together so that you can engage an investor when you have zero resources is really difficult. I think after that, you're, you're going, you get your term sheet, you now have to negotiate your financing and pull together a syndicate. And in this environment, I mean, again, Josh, as you well know, having you know gone through the ups and downs of synthesis financing, this environment is particularly difficult when it comes to raising capital. And so I think there was a uniquely difficult challenge in getting the right group together such that you reached a tipping point that tipped over from term sheet all the way through syndicate formation and money in the bank. You know, we were, I think, fortunate that we had enough of those pieces together to be oversubscribed. But getting from point A all the way through to you now have an operation. And then working and thinking in parallel, because you have to plan for success so that you're building a pipeline of candidates, you're looking at space, you're doing all the things so that when you have money in the bank, you're not wasting any time to hit the ground running so that you can build that organization and scale it to the point where you can work at the pace that you've promised your investors. And I think we have been really fortunate because we've been able to work at that pace. 
and in some ways actually work faster. But that's because we've had a very forgiving technology as much as we've had an exceptional team. And so we've had the luck of getting the right people early and getting a technology that actually works without a lot of manipulation. But you can't always count on that. You've been an advocate for equity and representation. You've sought to build and maintain diverse and inclusive cultures in your companies. Can you share your thoughts about the current state of the life science industry in the areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah, I'm happy to. I think it's a really important topic for me for for lots of reasons, many of them personal. But I I think it's a little bit of a paradox. I'm going to try to avoid the phrase hypocrisy. Biotech generally positions itself as a very progressive industry. And I think in a lot of ways it is. But I think generally speaking, the term itself progressive is imbued with a lot of promises that aren't necessarily delivered. And I think a lot of people say the right things, but don't always walk the walk. And so as an industry, I think we know we're deficient in obtaining the kind of representation that allows us to be proudly diverse. And what was a little frustrating to me throughout my career is that it was hard to see diversity. And I don't mean, I'm, I'm of Indian descent. I think you can find you know those from Asia in biotech, but I don't think we're finding as much representation of the Hispanic population, of the black population, the indigenous population. And I think that there are a lot of initiatives that that are out there to do that, but not a lot of real heart behind it. And so, you know, when I build companies, listen, I'm not as successful as I'd like to be in this either. I like to make sure that those who are typically underrepresented underrepresented are composing my organization. And so that means both gender and race. And so for me, you know, where you put your organization, how you hire, where you recruit are kind of simple things that you can influence as a CEO that I always thought were really hard before I was a CEO. Because all you'd ever hear is, well, you know, we have, you know, our company needs to be here. This isn't an area where we can draw from that population. Or the worst thing that I would hear is, well, you know, that's not a community that likes to work in biotech, which is utter and complete nonsense. And so I think that the industry has to step up its activity. I think there are some great beacons out there who are trying to really make a difference here. And I think ultimately it's going to advance the industry at a greater pace. I don't think this is charity. I don't think this is anything other than fairness and equity. And I think when we are a fairer and equitable industry, we will actually make larger strides, better decisions, which the data are clear on when you have diverse views, diverse populations, you have better decision-making capabilities. I think when we do that, we're going to take what is already a great industry and make it even better. I certainly hope so. And I know that you are making a difference in so many ways, including in, in helping to improve gender and racial diversity and, and, un, and helping underrepresented groups in the life sciences industry. One of the ways that you've been also making a difference is through the nonprofit that you started. 
that is focused on STEM education and trying to increase racial and gender diversity in that area. Could you talk about why you started the nonprofit? And in particular, in hearing your comments about the life sciences industry just a moment ago, I wonder, does it reflect any part of your experience that suggests that the for-profit side hasn't been doing enough and that you needed to start a nonprofit in order to make a, a, a bigger difference? Yeah, so that I'll try to address all aspects of the question. It's, it's a very good question. And thank you for the recognition on the 221B Foundation. You know, when founding the 221B Foundation, it was really in response to a couple of challenges during COVID. Number one, it was very clear that COVID was affecting those same populations that aren't fully represented in biotech at a greater rate than those that are. And so the goal of the 221B Foundation was to take the profit we made off of our COVID test and funnel it into this organization to promote both access to our technology to reach more of those populations and then also support young women and various races to engage in STEM education. And so it was more at that moment a response to COVID than necessarily whether for-profit or non-profit is creating a distinction in terms of the hiring practices for the industry. I think ultimately, yes, I do believe that there is an underrepresentation in the for-profit space, but I'm not sure that not-for-profits are going to are going to close the gap unless they take a much bigger step towards pulling more representation through the educational system and making it clearer that these opportunities in the life sciences and technology broadly are available to anybody with interest and capability. I think that's the real distinction, you know. For instance, you know, there are Boston public schools that are centrally located in Boston in very diverse neighborhoods that because of their location and their focus particularly on say STEM or vocations related to technology, draw in more of these in these communities to prepare them to be engaged in those communities, computer science, biotechnology. They partner with Harvard Medical School. And I think those kinds of initiatives are really critical to increasing representation. I think, unfortunately, what's going on in our city is that there is also a pull by those communities that are non-diverse to relocate them into non-diverse settings, which I hope that don't happen. The, the, those initiatives don't happen. But, but I think, like as an industry, if we were more proactive to ensure the central location of STEM education within communities that have incredible capability, you know, equal to anybody else's community to engage, but, you know, but are not as, as much a focus simply because of their racial composition. If we could do more of that, we'd have more representation. So I think it's obviously a challenge. I think for-profits can come together to be influential in that way. And I think if we don't start 
at the earliest stages of education, we're just making the job harder for ourselves. I think when we see certain injustices being levied, which I think are actually happening despite progressive stances towards trying to make representation more of a standard, I think until we make those steps at the earliest stages of education, we're just going to make the job harder for ourselves. Right. And on the topic of education, you've written a book on a different subject matter uh, called Guiding Icarus, Merging Bioethics and Corporate with Corporate Interests. What is that book about and why did you write it? Thank you for being maybe the one person aware of my book. I appreciate that, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote the book because I've always very strongly believed that technologies that fundamentally alter either our understanding or the actual functioning of human biology require the responsible delivery of those technologies. And biotechnology is very unique in the spectrum of technology, or it was, you know, as I thought about it at the time, I think AI is very much in the same realm of altering our understanding of what it means to be human and what it means to be us. And so the reach of biotechnology isn't academic. It is entirely corporate. If you do not have a product, you generally do not touch human beings. And so the translation of ideas into practice and the influence on our biology and healthcare happens through companies. And so that particular confluence, to me, identified a gap in our understanding of how it is we can responsibly deliver those technologies. And so in a very, you know, you know, in a very idealistic way, I felt that a guide for those of us who are developing technologies on how it is we may think about those technologies' influence on society and individuals could be helpful to companies. And so what I did is I looked at, I think, representative technologies across the spectrum of life science and said, how might we think about their influence on society and how might companies want to ask themselves, how am I developing these things so that they can be responsibly and effectively implemented with healthcare? And the title comes from the myth of Icarus, you know, which which you know one might consider a biotechnology, right? We alter we alter the physiology of you know two people. I think people often forget it was Daedalus the father and Icarus the son, and it was Daedalus who warned his son, you know, do not fly too close to the sun, lest you know you burn your feathers, or too close to the ocean you weight yourself down. And, you know, Ovid put it this way, which I thought was very telling of the biotechnology industry, to unimagined arts, he set his sights and altered nature's laws. And that is how we describe the myth of Icarus and the metamorphoses, which is as apt a description of biotechnology as any. And the warnings of that myth of the responsible use of it is so important to the survival of, you know, in this case, this individual. And it was Daedalus who warned him. And if we think about who is the better model, Icarus or Daedalus, Daedalus is, because Daedalus is the one who said, understand what you're doing before you do it, because the implications are critical. Fascinating. Well, I now have a new book to add to my reading list. You know, I want to conclude with one question for you, Revel. You've been an author, a director, a founder of for-profit biotechs, founder of a non-profit foundation your CEO, what's your favorite role? 
My favorite role is in my family. That is my favorite one. I think that is what we all should be doing when we do any of these things, thinking about how to be present with the people who, you know, whom you love and whom love you. But as it relates to like those particular roles, my favorite role is the CEO. My favorite role is the CEO because building something great is in and of itself rewarding. Being around a team that you can guide, that you can grow with, and whose growth you witness, and then ultimately delivering something that may not have existed without you, that saves someone's life, is an incomparable experience. And so of those things, you know, I, I have great pride in all of those roles. I enjoy all of those roles. But the thing that gets me up in the morning is coming in to see my team, knowing that we're going to change people's lives and improve healthcare. There is nothing that beats that. Well, I'm thankful, Rahul, to you for looking to change people's lives as a CEO to improve outcomes for patients also for the work you've done and continue to do to help the underrepresented and thankful to you also for being on my show today. I also am grateful to be a part of your team. Well, thank you so much, Josh. I'm, I'm grateful for all the support you've given me through, you know, Sintus and, and a number of other companies working on together and um, the Mintz team overall. And it's been a great joy to, to speak to you about um, more than we get a chance often to discuss. So Thank you so much, and thank you to the listeners for listening. Yes, thank you to our audience for listening today. Until next time on Client Corner, keep on building.